0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in no a listen-only
1: mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press 5 and 0 on your touchscreen telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop. Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Program highlights from the 2020 American Society of Clinical Oncology Annual Meeting, Unite and Conquer, Accelerating Progress Together. And this is a very uh, important program for all of you. We're delighted to have you on the call today. And it's, it really captures a lot of the new research that's been – that affects many of the cancers that we're going to be talking about in today's program. Um, today's program, um, we have over 210 participants on the program today. You come from all organized the United States. Um, from both rural, urban, and suburban areas. We also have international participants from a number number of countries, Australia, Canada, Croatia, India, Iraq, Lebanon, Pakistan, Singapore, Switzerland, and the UK. So really a bit of a global call as well. Today's program is supported by AFI, and I really want to thank them for their support. Now we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. Dr. Chris is the William and Joy Wayne Chair of Thoracic Oncology, attending physician, for Thoracic Oncology students, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and Professor of Medicine at Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Chris will be addressing how ASCO contributes to the treatment of cancer, and he'll be also providing updates on the treatment of lung cancer, which is presented in ASCO. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris.
2: Uh, And uh, thank you all for joining the call today and allowing us to uh, update you on uh, new developments in the entire field of oncology. Um, For uh, those of you not familiar with um, the American Society for Clinical Oncology, it's uh, a group of uh, cancer specialists uh, worldwide, but mainly a U.S. uh, membership. Uh, and uh, once a year, uh, they hold a uh, annual meeting. It's usually in Chicago. It's usually in person. It usually has nearly 40,000 uh, oncology specialists. Uh, of course, this year was a little different. Um, the meeting um, is uh, broken up into kind of two uh, parallel uh, parts. Uh, one part of it is the... Um, uh, educational session where uh, the uh, planning committee uh, chooses experts in various fields uh, and um, uh, they uh, speak about pre-designed uh, topics of, uh, of interest or, or controversy within the oncology community, so-called education session. The other part is, uh, is the scientific session. In uh, there, uh, cancer researchers from around the world uh, present their uh, new information. Uh, and it comes in one of three different forms. There's a so-called plenary session where among the nearly ten thousand uh, abstracts that are uh, so, uh, submitted and the thousand that are presented, five of them are chosen to be presented to all the attendees. There's then uh, so-called oral sessions, uh, and then there are several hundred of those presented. And then there are uh, poster sessions. It looks like the science fair that you may have remembered from high school. I was part of an educational session this year, and I'd like to briefly recap that. This education session uh, was uh, with myself, uh, Dr. Corinne Fairfinn from Manchester England, a radiation oncologist, and Steve Swisher, uh, the uh, chief of uh, surgery at uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And there, uh, we uh, discussed uh, topics of combined modality therapy, and that is for people with locally advanced lung cancers lung cancer that has not become um, metastatic so it's throughout the body, um, how could we best treat patients that way? Uh, and, uh, best treat patients, rather, with that stage. And, and the thrust of our uh, discussion was that uh, in 2020, we no longer treat patients with one kind of treatment. That, that in the past where somebody may have had an operation and nothing else, somebody had had radiation and nothing else, we now are uh, proposing conducting recommending uh giving multiple treatments together and i'll I'll uh, explain that the uh the point is that what you do in essence when you have any stage of cancer that has not spread you you put your minds together um, you have a uh tumor board in pretty much every hospital uh on earth now has this where experts in radiation in surgery, in medical oncology, radiology, pathology, interventional radiology, they all get together and discuss these cases. And the particular uh, thrust of this uh, paper uh, and presentation was the use of immunotherapeutics. Now, traditionally, and I'm going to talk more about that in a little bit, people have been using uh, the immunotherapeutic uh, approaches, uh, checkpoint inhibitors, with chemotherapy for people with lung cancer that has spread. But now there is very potent evidence that adding in these immunotherapeutic treatments with uh, uh, before surgery or uh, after chemotherapy and radiation improves outcomes. And I think that's the take-home message from there, that whereas five years ago we would have treated with only one kind of therapy or perhaps chemo and radiation for people with uh, locally advanced cancer that wasn't removable, we would now give chemotherapy and radiation and an immunotherapeutic. Instead of just surgery, we would give an immunotherapeutic agent before surgery uh, to further uh, help uh, increase the chances of uh, curing the illness. So I think the message there and the message uh, for everyone on the call today is that for every stage of lung cancer now, there needs to be a, a thorough discussion about all the options that are available, and trying to bring each of them to bear uh, for uh, individuals uh, with uh, cancer that that hasn't spread. Um, Moving to the the scientific session, you you may have remembered that there are five abstracts of the many uh, thousands that are submitted that get presented to every single doctor in attendance and one of those five this year had to do with lung cancer Uh, and the specific uh, point of that presentation was that in people whose lung cancer has a mutation in the EGFR gene after surgery and after chemotherapy if, if that is the appropriate treatment based on the stage of their illness they would then receive Uh, a specific drug, a drug called osamertinib, in a preventative way, so-called adjuvant therapy. And in that clinical trial, uh, at the end of, after surgery, after chemotherapy, if appropriate, people um, received either uh, uh, no additional treatment or they received the osamertinib. And those that got the osamertinib had a tremendous improvement. Uh, They went uh, from uh, a rate of uh, being cancer-free two years later, up to of 90%, and from those that didn't get the treatment, it was uh, less than 50%. So this uh, marked a huge uh, a key change in the care of these patients, uh, and based on this uh, recommendation, I think that the, the doctor's uh, presence said, you know, we need to um, give uh, osamirinib to every patient that has aegyphrine mutant cancer. The other thing that it changed was it um, uh, at at present people did not necessarily do a comprehensive molecular test in patients that had their cancer completely removed at surgery the potency of this medicine for the people with eGFR have mandated uh, testing of really all the specimens from people that have surgery now so that's a real change in our standard of care those patients with eGFR mutant cancers we would all be recommending the Ocimeritnib. Now, we, we find other, you know, cancer drivers as well. Uh, how we deal with them is going to be the subject of a lot of ongoing research, but at least your doctor will have that information uh, and with their uh, colleagues in their tumor boards, try to use that to best treat. But clear uh, new uh, change in treatment, testing of all surgical specimens, looking for the EGFR gene, and if the EGFR gene has a uh, mutation uh, the recommendation for Osamirinib and great benefits from that. There was another paper that was uh, discussed, and not in the plenary session but in the, one of the oral sessions, about using uh, chemotherapy and uh, an immunotherapy before surgery. Uh, and a group of investigators uh, did that, uh, and that combination of chemo and an immunotherapy, the therapeutic in this case for Valumab, uh, showed very promising benefit when is given pre surgery so echoing through that theme from the educational session giving other therapies uh with the traditional ones in that case chemo and surgery uh leading to a better outcome so i think that message is is clear uh and the importance of discussing uh uh care with the tumor boards the other um major area that was discussed was the use of immunotherapeutics and once again uh, I think the message was that uh, immunotherapeutics alone are successful, and there was a rep, uh, presentation giving nivolumab uh, and nivolumab in chemotherapy better than chemo alone. Um, another one giving uh, uh, drivalumab from and in chemo better than drivalumab and alimumab alone. You know, that message um, going forward uh, is that y- using these drugs with chemo improves outcomes. Uh, there was another... Um, uh, uh, publication uh, again, uh, giving just the immunotherapeutic and chemo, uh, versus chemotherapy and benefit there as well. So the uh, ipilimumab and nivolumab, either by itself or with chemo, better than chemo alone. I think it was very clear message from the ASCO meeting this year, and I think more and more oncologists are putting that into practice. So I think the the Take-home theres that immunotherapeutics continue to be uh, important uh, drugs. Uh, they're given to virtually every patient with lung cancer now that has metastatic disease uh, and their use of chemotherapy in enhances uh, benefit, uh, and there's a very you know, complicated discussion to decide whether or not you give the immunotherapeutic with chemo uh, or the immunotherapeutic alone, and that's something that, that you would need to get into uh, with your doctor. But those options exist, and they need to be explored. I think the other uh, data that was presented was for people that had mutational testing where we found mutations, we found these driver oncogenes, and that there are a number of new drugs that were discussed that are very effective uh, against uh, those cancers that have mutations or changes in those oncogenes. There were the drugs uh, poly- called and sulforcatinib or the RET fusion uh, uh, drivers. Uh, There were three drugs for um, met exon-14, Savolitinib, capmatinib, and tapotinib, and a drug for a very pesky and and, and, uh, hard-to-treat mutation, the EGFR exon-20 insertion. There was a drug with encouraging results uh, in antibody called amadantinib. So I think The uh, outlook for people that have driver oncogenes continues to improve. More drugs uh, successfully treat patients whose tumors have these oncogenes. Pointing again, the importance of testing, uh, complete testing for every tumor at the time of diagnosis, and when you find these drivers, we do we we would go after them. Two of these drugs were both recently approved uh, by uh, FDA, in guidelines now available for everybody. Selpercatinib for the RET and capmatinib for on 14, so good news that this is not just for the future, these are drugs that are here today and can be used. So summarizing the developments in lung cancer at ASCO this year, I think people are very, very encouraging that the benefits of immunotherapeutics continue to be demonstrated, uh, they continue to last over time, that giving them immunotherapeutics with chemotherapy is better, uh, and uh, for uh, patients with local regional cancer, uh, giving either people that have surgery or people that have uh, chemotherapy and radiation, giving immunotherapeutics with other therapies that is better. The use of Ossamarinid is a new standard of care uh, for patients that have EGFR mutant cancers that have a complete dissection. Uh, and uh, for uh, patients that, that have testing, find a new target. Uh, there are many new drugs available, more more coming, uh, and more options for those patients. And just to to end, uh, in the paper version of the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, this last issue, there was a uh, paper showed the decrease in mortality, deaths from lung cancer over the last several years, and the authors ascribed that uh, decrease in the death rate uh, to the emergence of these new therapies. So I think that's very, very encouraging news for all of us that these drugs make a difference. Uh, They deserve more widespread use, uh, and I think the ASCO meeting this year kind of uh, supported all that and and put the word out to the oncology world that this is the way we're going, and and everyone should feel hopeful that our therapies make meaningful differences in in people's lives, uh, and and more and more people are living with cancer uh, based on these new developments. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That really is such important news for everybody to hear and uh, um wonderful way to start the program um, with for you, in, inspirational information. So thank you so much, and, and evidence-based information from ASCO. Thank you, uh, on Cancer Treatments. And our next speaker is Dr. Al Benson. The third, Dr. Benson, is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. And Dr. Benson is going to be addressing updates on the treatment of colorectal cancer presented at ASCO and throwing my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson.
2: Thank you, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to join everyone today. Uh, as Dr. Chris uh, emphasized and what you could see is that there is a growing emphasis across oncology looking at specific tumor genomics or biological characteristics for treatment determination for individual patients. And this year at ASCO, many of the colorectal cancer abstracts focused on determining more precise treatments for individual patients based on biological characteristics. The first abstract I'll present was a very high-profile presentation and his practice changing. And this abstract addressed the role of immunotherapy with the drug pembrolizumab compared to standard chemotherapy uh, for patients who have what's known as microsatellite instability high tumors, also referred to as mismatch repair deficient uh, tumors. And these were metastatic colorectal cancer patients who has not received previous therapy. Uh, of note is MSI determination is now recommended for all patients with colorectal cancer. Uh, that is because not only do we have immunotherapeutic strategies that can be very successful to treat patients, but also there's a percentage of these individuals who carry an inherited risk uh, known as the Lynch syndrome, Uh, And uh, these individuals can develop colon cancer or other tumors, and it's important to know this both for the patient and the patient's family. About 15% of all colon rectal patients are MSIH, uh, and uh, about 5% of metastatic uh, patients have uh, MSIH tumors. Uh, in this particular trial, uh, the uh, con- known as the control arm, uh, with standard chemotherapy, with either full FOX or full theory, and patients may have received with their chemotherapy a biologic agent such as bevacizumab or cetuximab. In this trial, about 70% of patients had colon tumors on the right side, and this is quite characteristic of uh, an MSI population of patients. This trial showed high significant benefit for those who received pembrolizumab compared to those who received chemotherapy, both uh, in terms of duration of response, so patients had much longer control of their disease, as well as uh, the pembrolizumab doubled the progression-free survival compared uh, to the chemotherapy arm. Importantly, immune-related toxicities were low. The FDA has now approved pembrolizumab as what's known as a first-line approach for the MSI population of metastatic colorectal cancer patients, and this is now a new standard of care. The second uh, abstract I'm going to present also looks at another tumor biological phenomenon known as HER2 expression. HER2 expression is seen in a number of different cancers, most notably breast cancer, stomach cancer, and colon cancer.
3: Uh, And
2: in fact, there are uh, now regimens for people with HER2 expressing metastatic colorectal cancer, including combinations with the drugs trastuzumab and Lepatinib, as well as trastuzumab and pertuzumab. And in this population, uh, about 40% of patients have what's known as RAS wild type tumors. And of that group, uh, it's estimated 5 to 12 percent of patients have HER2 expressing tumors. If a person has what's known as a RAS mutated tumor, uh, they will not benefit from a HER2 directed regimen. Now this particular phase two trial used a drug known as TDXD. And this is a monoclonal antibody, which has the same amino acid sequence as trastuzumab, but it's also combined with what's known as a topoisomerase inhibitor payload. And topoisomerase inhibition is an important target in colorectal cancer, for example. So this trial included people who had HER2-expressing tumors, uh, they were RAS, wild type, and all patients had received previous treatment. And what this trial showed is very, very promising response rates and duration of response for people who received this drug. Uh, there was consistent safety information, uh, and so therefore, uh, this drug will be uh, further tested and there is expectation that this may well become a new standard of care for HER2-expressing uh, patients. The third trial looked at yet a, another biological phenomenon known as BRAF mutations. Uh, we see uh, BRAF mutated tumors in about 10 to 15% of patients with colorectal cancer, And uh, some of these people uh, also actually have MSI-H tumors uh, in addition. Um, This has been uh, a population that was in urgent need of improved therapeutic strategies. And there have been now uh, developed agents that specifically target the BRAF mutation. One such drug is known as encorafenib. Uh, One observation, though, is unlike in melanoma skin cancer, for example, where patients can respond to uh, single-agent BRAF treatment, this is not so in colon cancer. And so the development of combinations has been very important. So this trial looked at uh, the BRAF drug, Encarafenib, combined with Cetuximab, which targets what's known as EGFR pathway, plus what's known as a MEK inhibitor, uh, uh, Benimetinib. Um, and so this was a combination of all biologic drugs, and it was compared to a standard arena tcan based therapy with Cetuximab. And, what, and this was a large trial, uh, over 600 patients, and what it showed is that angorafenib and cetuximab, with or without the third drug, binimetinib, had overall improved survivorship, response rate, and progression free survival. And also, it appeared that the two drugs, angorafenib and cetuximab, were really equivalent to the three-drug combination. And so now... For patients with BRAF mutated tumors who have had uh, previous therapy, this combination is a new standard of care and is now FDA approved. The fourth trial um, is um, a very different strategy. This is known as the IDEA trial, and this was quite an undertaking. It was an international combination of six trials where the design uh, was um, initiated right from the beginning to incorporate the data of all six trials to evaluate uh, whether three months versus six months of Uh, adjuvant chemotherapy with an oxaliplatin-based regimen uh, was most appropriate for stage 3 colon cancer patients. So this trial uh, had almost 13,000 patients. And uh, the design was a little bit different because it was a non-inferiority trial looking at 3 versus 6 months. And what that means is it wasn't a determination of some if one if three months was better or worse than six months, nor was it designed to show that three months was equivalent to six months, but rather that there was not a predefined difference that would uh, exclude giving a person three months versus what had than the standard of six months of treatment. This trial uh, did demonstrate uh, something that we've been aware of, that there are low versus high risk patients with stage 3 colon cancer, and that's based on the TNM system, particularly the, the tumor characteristics, looking at the degree of infiltration uh, through the colon wall, as well as the number of positive lymph nodes. In addition, uh, either uh, oral case cytabine plus oxaliclantin or infusional private U plus platin was included. And the premise here is that three months, if shown to be non-inferior, should lead to less overall toxicity. Uh, particularly the neurotoxicity of oxaliplatin. And indeed what this uh trial showed, and this was the presentation of the final analysis of the combined data, that uh, there were significantly less side effects for patients who received three months of therapy. Very importantly, there was minimal difference in five-year overall survivorship between those who received three versus six months of treatment. Also, very encouragingly, the overall survival uh, for patients with stage 3 tumors in this trial was very, very high. Um, It did confirm that there are these prognostic groups based on the TNN uh, status. And overall, from this trial, uh, the recommendation is that uh, the combination of capecitabine and oxaliplatin given for three months is very appropriate for people with low-risk disease or or high-risk disease. In addition, the fox combination is appropriate for people with low-risk uh, stage 3 disease. However, if a patient uh, is to receive the fox regimen and have high-risk disease, then six months of fox should be given. So, um, I would like to uh, conclude uh, my remarks with uh, having reviewed these four important abstracts uh, that certainly uh, represent uh, uh, trends that are practice-changing. Uh, thanks so much, and um, Dr. Mesner, I'll turn this back over to you.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Benson, and it's so wonderful to hear about the practice-changing Treatment for Colorectal Cancer Act uh, that was reported from ASCA. That's a, a wonderful for all of our participants here as well. So thank you so much. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Eileen O'Reilly. Dr. O'Reilly is the Winsworth Rockefeller Endowed Chair in Medical Oncology, Section Head Hepatopancreo, Biliary, and Neuroendocrine Cancers, Co-Director of Medical Initiatives, David M. Rubenstein, Center for Pancreatic Cancer, Attending Physician, Member of Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center, professor of medicine while at Cornell Medical College. Uh, so Dr. O'Reilly raised many hats, And Dr. O'Reilly will be directing updates on the treatment of pancreas cancer presented at ASCO. It will be my great pleasure, and I'm uh, very um, happy to present to you my esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Reilly.
0: Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Messer. It's a pleasure to be here uh, for the next ten minutes to review what's been happening in the pancreas cancer space uh, related to ASCO, and I'll mention one other uh, presentation from one of our other recent meetings that's uh, important. So two two major topics. First is what's happening in localized pancreas cancer, and the second part of the discussion is more focused on, on metastatic disease. So speaking to localized pancreas cancer, Current standards if a patient has an operable cancer are, are twofold: one is to go directly to surgery and then to follow on with post-operative or adjuvant therapy designed to try to address any microscopic cells or to uh, consider preoperative or neoadjuvant therapy which provides early delivery of treatment to address any microscopic cells and to maximize the chances that a person who does undergo surgery in the future benefits from that surgery and uh, we don't see an early relapse uh, of the cancer. And so this has been uh, a developing paradigm over the last number of years, which of these approaches is best, Uh, either surgery first or chemotherapy first for localized pancreas cancer, and if so, uh, which is the best program of treatment to give. So some of the uh, studies that were presented uh, address these topics. Uh, The first uh, trial is called SWOG-S1505, and this was conducted in in North America and looked at the two major uh, treatment programs for pectus cancer, Fulchiranox, which is a four-drug combination, including a vitamin, and Chimstitibina and Pachytasol. Both of those are international standards uh, when the cancer is spread, And the idea is bringing them to uh, earlier stage uh, disease may uh, favorably impact outcome. And the community uh, at large, I would say, has had a lot of biases about which of these two approaches was better. And in this trial, there were two groups uh, uh, of people treated. One group received forferinox, then surgery, then additional forferinox, and the other group received timcitabine then uh, napactitaxel, then surgery, and then uh, some citigine napactitaxel. And to, to many people's surprises, the outcomes were uh, pretty equivalent in terms of the ability to deliver the treatment, uh, the number of patients that were able to undergo surgery, and the ultimate overall outcome of the treatment with regard to longevity, suggesting that there may be more equipoise uh, than we would have previously uh, thought uh, related to the use of these two programs uh, in the uh, post operative setting. I will say that that is a little bit discordant in the in the sense that prior data has suggested that Cophermax, when given post operatively, has a stronger outcome. We see less occurrences and, and people live longer compared to uh, gencitabine and nab-haktitaxil in two separate studies that were conducted. Uh, having said that, uh, it may be the different phase in which this is given uh, preoperatively. It may be part of the tolerability of, of treatments. Uh, But I think the the field uh, wants to investigate this signal and understand it uh, further. But right now, we would say that if preoperative treatment is to be administered, based on these data, there's a choice, and that choice can be physician and patient uh, preference related to the individual downsides uh, of of these programs of treatment. So moving uh, to the second study, and, and this Comes from colleagues in the UK that have uh, conducted a, a number of practice changing studies uh, for many years called the FFAC group uh, Japan European group centred uh, in England and this particular trial is called FFAC 5F is a, a signal-seeking study it's not a definitive one meaning we wouldn't base a final decision on this but it, it certainly supports a hypothesis that's been around for for a while, and it was somewhat complicated in, in its design, but at the end of the day, there was really one question that it was designed to try to uh, give some insights into, and this is for patients with who have what we call borderline resectable cancer. So, when we think about localized pancreas cancer, about 15% of people have a tumor where they could go to the operating room tomorrow and have a high expectation of doing a complete removal. About uh, 15 to 20% will have uh, cancer that's involving blood vessels where it's not feasible to operate uh, at the time point of diagnosis. May change down the road. And then there's this group in between, which technically are operable, but there's a high chance of leaving at least microscopic cells at the time of surgery. That's called borderline resectable group. And there's increasing consensus that going to surgery first isn't the best strategy for uh, that setting, and we usually recommend uh, preoperative therapy. So this trial looked at giving uh, preoperative treatments of various types, uh, gemcitabine and a drug called capcitabine. That's an oral medication. It looked at fulfirinox and it looked at giving chemoradiation and compared it to going direct to surgery because while we've always thought it would be better to give preoperative treatment, we don't have a study that actually tells us that. This study was small, but nonetheless, when you look at uh, the three groups of patients who received pre-op treatment compared to those who went directly to surgery, The outcome was better and it was noticeably better so that really kind of underpins the rationale for early delivery of systemic treatment or chemotherapy based uh, treatment to try to address microscopic uh, circulating cells to try to address the visible disease that's in the pancreas and to try to facilitate getting a complete removal uh, of the cancer So these results are going to be built upon, and in the U.S. and Canada, a major trial has just been activated that will uh, recruit about 350 patients with a a new uh, diagnosis of pancreas cancer and look at this with a current, one of the best state-of-the-art treatment programs, uh, looking at the approach of surgery first, followed by Uh, intravenous treatment or preoperative treatment and then surgery and and sort of designed to uh, understand uh, for an individual patient what's the best way uh, to proceed. So that sums up uh, that particular uh, part of the the talk and I'll I'll just uh, give a little bit of information on a couple of other um, abstracts that were uh, presented. One was an update on a new combination of medications, looking at a drug called liposomal venexican, which is a a nanoparticle-formulated drug, and we have one approved in pancreas cancer, napactitexil, and there's some hints that we may get better penetration of the tumor, and the circulating levels in the body may be more favorable with this formulation. Uh, this has been combined with uh, 5-SU, leucovorin, that vitamin we mentioned, and oxaliplatin, and it has been tested and, and demonstrated to have uh, a good safety signal and to have an encouraging signal in terms of shrinking the cancer and controlling the disease. Uh, these data have been awaited for a while and positioned now in uh patients with newly diagnosed, untreated pancreas cancer, uh, a way to evaluate this uh, combination and compare it to uh, gemcitabine and nab-paclitaxel. So we're seeing more of this in pancreas cancer, uh, just understanding uh, which is the best program of initial treatment uh, in terms of the current options that are out there because right now we do not have good ways to select in advance uh, what characteristic of a given person's health or their tumor or their genetic analysis might suggest which of these two approaches is preferred. So uh, some of these studies, and this one in particular, will, will give us more insight into which uh, might be a better approach uh, for a given uh, person. And lastly, I'll mention one other uh, trial that was updated. We have had a number of presentations on this, but it's a very topical area in pector's cancer related to the genetics of the disease and how that applies to, to treatment. So it's relatively recently that pancreas cancer has come into this era of precision medicine where we find a genetic alteration in the tumor or the blood and have a treatment approach that targets this. So last year, we heard the initial results of a trial called the POLAR study, which looked at the use of a drug called a PARP inhibitor, or Olaparib, in uh, people with pancreatic cancer who had received initial chemotherapy, whose cancer was stable or better, and were allocated to a PARP inhibitor, Olaparib, or, or not. To be eligible for this trial, they had to have a mutation or a change in a, a gene uh, called BRCA1 or BRCA2, which may predispose to the development of the cancer in the first place, but is also a, a targeted opportunity. And that trial was positive and led to the FDA approval of Olaparib at the end of 2019. And some additional analyses were presented, including the understanding that it didn't, doesn't appear to matter whether you have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation. Both are important and both predict for potential benefit for this class of drugs. It didn't appear to matter, relatively speaking, what age you had. Uh, that was uh, also not a factor in, in suggesting who might benefit or who might not. And then it looked more into the specific details of the individual mutation, uh BRCA1 or BRCA2, and understanding which types of changes in the genetic makeup uh, predicted for response, and there were some types that were more common and appear to be uh, more suggestive of benefit. So this helps us understand uh, and refine the use of this medication, and one of the big themes in, in Panker's cancer right now is trying to build on that signal to see if it might be applicable for a larger group of people who have other genetic uh, mutations in their blood or tumor uh, beyond BRCA. So more to come uh, on this, as it's a a very active uh, area of research uh, right now in pancreas cancer. So thank you. I'll I'll stop there and uh, pass this uh, back, the line back to, to Dr. Messner.
1: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Arada. That was really so so much information for everybody, and really uh, it sounds like the research is really uh, moving um, forward with the cancer new treatment options, and it's wonderful. So thank you so much. Uh, it's very very important to hear. And our next speaker is uh, Dr. Sarah Rutherford. Dr. Rutherford is a John P. Leonard MD, Gortzburg Family Research Scholar in the lymphoma. Assistant Professor of Medicine, while Cornell Medical College, Cornell University, and Dr. Roberts will be addressing updates on the treatment of lymphoma presented at ASCO. May I, great pleasure, turn them over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rosford? Thank you, Dr. Messner. I'm happy to be able to participate today. We will now shift gears to speak about blood-related or hematologic cancers. And I will focus on notable lymphoma-related research that was presented at ASCO. Lymphomas or cancers are cancers of a type of white blood cell called lymphocyte, and are typically spread around the body at diagnosis. Therefore, the treatments are typically what we would call systemic, um, either intravenous or oral therapies usually, and uh, do not often include surgery. In contrast to the diseases that you've heard about thus far, um, except. For the diagnosis process, which is often done by a biopsy, for example, of a lymph node, I will focus on three big categories of lymphomas. There are over 80 different types of lymphomas, but there are certainly the most common ones that we um, that we uh, see the most often. And um, the first big category are aggressive or fast-growing non-Hodgkin lymphomas. The second category will be influence or slow-growing non-Hodgkin lymphomas, and lastly, I will talk about Hodgkin lymphoma. I will present one to two uh, key abstracts that were presented at OSCO, um with these different types of lymphomas. First, we will discuss the aggressive lymphomas. Um, the most common subtype of lymphoma overall is called the c b lymphoma, and it falls into this category. These diseases are curable in a large number of patients with chemoimmunotherapy, but there are some patients that aren't cured and um, some that relapse and require additional therapy. Research efforts have been focused in part on adding new agents to the standard backbone of treatment, such as ARDSHOP or dose-adjusted EPOXR, with the goal of increasing the cure rate for newly diagnosed patients. The first abstract I will discuss is a study uh, that I had uh, the opportunity to be part of and worked on with a group of seven academic centers co-led by Dr. Jeremy Abramson that investigated an oral drug called Venetoclax, which is called a PCL2 inhibitor in addition to a standard chemotherapy backbone called dose-adjusted Epoch-R and newly diagnosed aggressive B-cell lymphomas. This was a phase one study that was designed to determine the recommended phase two dose of this drug, Venetoclax, in combination with a chemotherapy regimen. And therefore, it was a small study that enrolled um, 30 patients total, and 15 of them were actually uh, made up of a disease called double-hit lymphoma. This is a disease that's characterized by chromosomal changes that often include DCO2. That's what is inhibited by the drug, Venetoclax and are typically less responsive to standard chemotherapy compared to patients without these chromosomal abnormalities. We found a venetoclax dose of 600 milligrams for five days along with their chemotherapy regimen. This suggests the epinecab was well-tolerated and enabled most patients to complete the standard six cycles of chemotherapy. Decreased blood counts, nausea, and fatigue were the most common side effects. And there will be a couple of toxicities that need to be further investigated in a Phase 2 and 3 trial, including neutropenic fever and gastrointestinal-related side effects. We found a high objective response rate of 97% with a complete response rate of 93%. Of the, uh, of the 15 patients with double hit lymphoma, was 13, which is 87%, had a complete response. This group of patients along with another subcategory called double expressor lymphomas are now being studied in a randomized phase two slash three trial run by the Alliance for Clinical Trials called Alliance 51701 which combines genetic loss with either those suggested EPOC R or CHOP based in part on the basin regimen that was determined by this phase one trial. I will now shift gears to talk about indolent lymphoma most common subtypes, follicular lymphoma and marginal zone lymphoma. And then I will talk about BLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which we often consider a lymphoma as well. These tend to be slower growing diseases that those patients often live with for many years and require treatment intermittently when patients are symptomatic from the disease. These lymphomas generally are not thought to be curable, um, but again, uh, often have very good prognoses. And um, are treated as um, again as patients become symptomatic over time. Research efforts in this disease have uh, has focused on developing targeted therapies that are better tolerated by patients, with the goal of patients feeling as well as possible for as long as possible. An exciting abstract was presented by Dr. Karen Jacobson on chimeric antigen receptor for CAR T cells. In particular, in marginal lymphoma, marginal zone lymphomas, which is called the ZUMA-5 trial, CAR T cells are created after a patient's own blood is removed and processed in such a way that is thought to enhance the body's ability to better fight the lymphoma, and then are reinfused back into the patient. CAR T cells are currently FDA approved for relapsed and refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma patients and mantle cell lymphoma patients. But not for follicular or marginal zone lymphoma. The patients enrolled on this study had received two or more prior lines of therapy, um, and the median number of therapies they had received was three. There were 160 patients enrolled, primarily with follicular lymphoma, and about 100 of those patients were valuable at the time of the ASCO submission of work, of efficacy or for response. Um, the objective response rate was 93% with 80% complete response rate, which is quite high. And um, one key point with the CAR T cells and any of the diseases that it is uh, given in is how long will the, will the duration um, of response last and how long will the patient experience the response. Uh, and in, in this case, the median follow-up was a bit over a year, 15 months, the median duration of response with 20 months, um, with with a progression-free survival of 23 months, about two years, um, and this is this is um, an um, a impressive amount of time for a treatment like this to work. Most symptoms, um, including some complications that are associated with CAR Set, including cytokine release syndrome and neurologic event occurred early in the course and often resolved without any long-term complications. Next, I want to discuss a study in a disease called chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, which we also uh, consider uh, a slow-growing lymphoma, by Dr. Jacob Sumerai. CLL is also often a slow-growing disease for which multiple new targeted therapies have been uh, FDA-approved in recent years. These new drugs enable patients to be managed without chemotherapy approaches. One focus of research in CLL is to determine if some patients can be given time-limited therapy in which those with excellent responses can stop treatment after a certain period of time rather than continue it indefinitely. In a Phase two trial, Dr. Sumurai enrolled patients who had not yet received treatment for CLL in the past and administered three novel agents, including the Grutin's tyrosine kinase inhibitors, Xandagrutinib, the anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody of and the BCL-2 inhibitor flex, which you've heard me talk about earlier. He implemented a strategy by which a peripheral blood, a regular blood draw, um, was assessed for minimal residual disease, um, and basically that uh, is a, a technique uh, in which uh, testing was done to assess if there's any CLL cells at a very low level existing in the blood. And when a patient was found to have undetectable levels of minimal residual disease, he or she received two additional therapy cycles, and then were monitored without treatment. Um, At this point, the follow-up time has only been 11 months, so this is early on in the process, but he found that 62%, 23 out of 37 patients, achieved that undetectable minimal residual disease status with a minimum time excuse me, immediate time of achieving this of six months. And therefore, many of the patients were able to stop treatment after eight months, which is much shorter than some of the other um, therapies that are often given for even years. The most common side effects experienced were decreased blood count, infusion related reactions, bruising, and diarrhea. And we look forward to hearing more follow-up of these patients over time with this promising short duration of therapy. Finally, I will discuss important data on Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, Hodgkin lymphoma is a disease that is often curable, um, but uh, there are some patients who have suboptimal responses or who relapse after the first line of treatment. There are two novel treatment strategies that have been developed in recent years for Hodgkin lymphoma. One of which has been approved in combination with chemotherapy in newly diagnosed patients. That drug is called the and binds to a protein on the surface of the lymphoma cells called CD30 and is then internalized and directly kills the lymphoma cells. A second class of drugs approved for Hodgkin lymphoma and the relapsed or refractors that in patients who have had additional treatment in the past. Um, are the immune checkpoint inhibitors, nivolumab and pembrolizumab. The KEYNOTE 204 trial was a randomized phase 3 study in which 300 patients were treated with either pembrolizumab or brentuximab vedotin. Um, the primary endpoint was progression-free survival, and this is reported as an amount of time, typically in months, from the start of treatment until the disease is found to be growing or progressing. Investigators reported that the median progression-free survival was significantly longer in patients treated with Pembrolizumab versus pembrolizumab That was about 13 versus 8 months. And uh, furthermore, the median duration of response, the time that the treatment was effective, was 20, about 20 versus 13 months for Pembrolizumab versus pembrolizumab Therefore, the authors conclude that Pembrolizumab should be the standard of care in patients with relapsed or refractory or classical Hodgkin lymphoma, um, and I believe more will be reported um, over time in that study as well. I am very excited to be able to share this exciting data uh, on the multiple new therapeutic approaches in lymphoma that were presented at ASCO. As a lymphoma doctor, I look forward to ongoing improvements in responses and tolerability of treatment as well as shortened duration of treatment in some patients based on ease and future approaches. And I hope to have the opportunity to speak with you all again in the future. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Rutherford. That, that's really amazing, um, the new treatments available, and you definitely will be, you definitely will have to happy speaking to our participants again in the future. Absolutely. But um, really very um, wonderful, the data that you presented, and thank you so much. And I think it's uh, very important for all of the participants, um, you know, living with them, so to hear about these updates and, and to share them with uh, um, their friends and colleagues. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader of Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, member of Memorial Stone Kettering Cancer Center, and professor while Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow will be addressing updates on the treatment of leukemia presented at ASCO, and it's really my great pleasure to turn it over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Dr. Morrow.
3: Well, thank you, Carolyn. Um, and it's great to be in such great company of um, the speaker panel we have today. So my task in the next short bit is to cover leukemia, which is a pretty big subject area. Um, and to be honest, um, ASCO tends to be a time when leukemia physicians are maybe a little bit more hard at work generating um, research data to share um, throughout the year, and we may be a little bit less likely to have some, as, as big a presentation at this meeting as we do our hematology meetings in December. But that being said, um, I'm going to cover... Some information shared about a couple of different blood cancers that haven't been spoken about yet. Um, So stay with me, and um, I'll start first with um, information from the uh, ASCO meeting 2020 related to myelodysplasia and leukemia, really. And this was a study which um, built on the current platform of treatment for MDS, which. A lot of advance was made when we developed a class of drugs, or when a class of drugs was developed called hypomethylating agents, Uh, drugs which uh, essentially affected the DNA machinery and allowed cells to uh, sort of kick back into a little bit of a more of a normal pathway and lead to better blood counts and and hopefully uh, disease response and disease control. And one of the big medications that's been approved and used for years is a drug called azacitidine. Um, a very uh, good medication for uh, dysplasia, also leukemia in certain settings, which I'll talk about in a bit. And the trial I want to speak about was a trial um, of over 200 patients combining uh, a medication, um, which I'm going to try to pronounce properly, uh, um, um with azacitidine. So what is that uh, Pavonadinostat medication really about? Um, as expected, we've been trying to improve on medications like azacitidine, and this very specific drug inhibits an enzyme called NEV8, uh, and this is where basic science really uh, goes, what we call bench-to-bed side. Um, so inhibiting this enzyme with um, this, this uh, novel agent basically sets cells up um, to undergo programmed cell deaths by leading to accumulation of things that are bad for, for cells, whether they're uh, cells related to MDS or or AML. So combining that with azacitidine, which is a drug which also sort of turns on cell machinery, um, could be a very potent combination. And the interesting science behind this was that alone these two medications only have so much power, um, but together in the the laboratory the power seemed to be quite great. So this trial was um, begun looking at patients with higher risk myelodysplasia, a specific form of myelodysplasia called CMML, which has always been a challenge to treat, and um, patients with leukemia with what's called a low blast count. So where perhaps the disease was a bit earlier on in its presentation. And uh, fast forward uh, to the results. And, again, about two-thirds of patients in the trial had MDS, about one-third AML. Uh, sorry, a, um, a smaller number with um, CMML and a smaller number with the, the low blast count AML. Um, and we definitely saw good results. We saw that, um, and the goal, again, the goal of these trials was to show that people lived longer and, and did did better. And the primary endpoint here was what's called event-free survival, meaning that people um, were able to uh, live without having complications from MBS or AML. And it was definitely superior in the combination arm um, compared to a standard treatment group, which got azacitidine. Now, those patients did OK as well, but there was definitely an advantage. Um, what was most remarkable is that the adverse events in the, two, in the two arms were almost identical. So we've kind of slipped in a very um, you know, targeted drug with a very specific aim. Um, on top of a medication that already has um, proven to be a workhorse, and we're seeing better results for a number of different subgroups of uh, patients with, like, as I said, higher risk myelodysplasia and early forms of which the leukemia. So that was really encouraging, and really, again, shows um, the, um, the benefits of what we call bench-to-bedside medicine, where we can uh, evolve uh, targeted therapies in, into the clinic. Let me switch now to full-blown AML. Um, and another, uh, again, I think, proof of principle for Bench to bet that would be um, a study looking at um, the, the drug ibacidinib, which is a inhibitor of an enzyme called IDH, or isocitrate dehydrogenase. This, this discovery in AML that um, a, a good number of patients with AML at diagnosis, often uh, at a later point during treatment, might um, be noticed to have a mutation. And a basic enzyme that's actually related to the energy cycle in cells, which can lead to accumulation of things that, again, are bad for cells and, and allow them to behave like leukemia. Um, and, and drugs were developed to inhibit two forms of this enzyme, IDH1 and IDH2, and have been FDA-approved and, and have um, really changed the way we can treat certain forms of acute leukemia. Couple of that with a story where two medications were approved for AML um, or not approved but combined. Um, again, azacitidine, the drug I just spoke about, and a drug, venetoclax, also um, approved, but borrowed from another disease area, it really developed first in lymphoid leukemias, as my colleagues spoke about. Um, so um, back, in, back into the laboratory and saying, how, how could we best treat targeted uh, in a targeted way patients with acute leukemia? So this trial looked at patients who were uh, newly diagnosed um, as well as uh, who had already had treatment, who had this IDH mutation, and looked at different combinations, either giving the Targeted drug against the IDH mutation with the drug venetoclax um, and venetoclax at higher doses or given giving them all three medications. And I think this is really showing us the evolution in how we can treat AML in a targeted fashion better. Um, the overall response rate was three-quarters of the patients responded to treatment, and 100% of patients who were newly diagnosed responded. You can't argue with 100% response rate. Um, as well, half of the patients had... No evidence of the leukemia by what's called minimal residual disease testing, which is important, especially um, if people are able to go on to other therapies or to show that they've had a very high-quality response um, and to minimize relapse risk. So with a combination of targeted drugs, I think we're we're honing in on subsets of AML with certain mutations where we can treat even better, utilizing all the advances that have happened really over the last three to five years, which has been remarkable on AML. Um, I'll speak again, next about a little bit of an earlier trial on AML, um, which I think introduces a different technology, something called a bite, which has nothing to do with people getting angry and, and, and behaving like dogs. It, it's, um, it's a bispecific antibody um, that engages T-cells, um, so that means we're now using an immunotherapy of sorts, um, where we're getting T-cells to come together um, by means of a, a, an antibody complex, and that's those two cells coming together can fight cancer. So, in this case, we're, we're getting um, leukemia cells in, in AML patients um, together with T cells, which can cause uh, leukemia cells to undergo programmed cells afterward to eliminate them. Um, and this is a strategy that's been used in, in several different cancers, but um, a, a, a study was reported at, at uh, ASCO for a drug called AMG-330, which is against a leukemia marker called CD33, which and, and on the other end was um, CD3. So that, that brings T-cells and leukemia cells together, sort of the kiss of death. Um, and this was a treatment in patients who had had multiple different regimens for AML, And this was a, a very early study where we looked at very careful escalation of the, of the antibody com- compound because we wanted to make sure we didn't see the overzealous immune side effects that can happen with immunotherapy, which has been a, a really careful area of study as we've seen explosion in immunotherapy. And um, what was shown in the study is that um, they were able to control the what's called cytokine release syndrome, which is where uh, different um, reactions can happen is that the immune system is being revved up by, by treatment with steroids and other uh, careful approaches, and they're seeing nice responses as they move up to different, dos- different dosing cohorts of this um, antibody combination. So immunotherapy, in this means by using a specific antibody, is showing promise in AMR. I thought that was encouraging as well. Okay, so in the home stretch here, I'm going to mention two other studies. First, one in ALL, um, or acute lymphoblastic uh, leukemia. And this was uh, closer to my heart because it's um, for patients with the Philadelphia chromosome, um, or pH-positive ALL, or patients with blast phase of CML. So, so this is another antibody um, study, and it's combining two medications. One, um, imatuzumab-ogosamycin, which is an antibody against... Um, CB22, which is on lymphoid cancer cells, but the top, and that antibody um, delivered the toxin to the leukemia cell, and that, this study combined it with basutinib, which is a targeted drug, uh, an able kinase inhibitor. This was a phase 1-2 study by the MD Anderson group. Um, not a lot of patients, but I think, um, again, these early studies sometimes give us, you know, what to look for in the future, and as they looked at um, how to combine these two drugs carefully. They uh, came upon what is the right dose of basutinib, which is ironically the same dose we now favor in, in newly diagnosed patients with CML, 400 milligrams. And um, they were able to combine it with the inotutinib antibody. And overall response rate, 83%. Fifty to, More than 50% of patients had what's called a complete molecular response, but the Philadelphia chromosome levels were undetectable. And they didn't see any evidence of what's called genoacoustic disease, which is a complication in the liver where there can be some vascular injury, which can come from this, um, this type of medication, um, specifically uh, the, um, the conjugate antibody with the, um, the toxin. So very, very encouraging. Some of these patients were able to go on to a bone marrow transplant, which is important if, if someone has ALL and it's um, well, to treatment. So very encouraging. Last, I'll... I'll cover probably something that's closest to my heart, which would be um, a presentation by um, a group of us um, looking at the drug Penantinib, um, or Eclucig, and how we should be best using it in CML. So Penantinib was a targeted, rationally designed drug to be given to patients with resistant forms of CML, including patients who have a certain mutation called a T315I, and it's come um, a long way, you know, we saw it approved, and, and we've been careful to scrutinize carefully side effects, and um, the story here is that we're still now trying to figure out what is exactly the best dose for patients um, to start with and then to to finish with. And in this study, it looked at starting at low, medium, or higher doses, or really what's now still the standard dose, 45 milligrams, and then lowering it to 15 milligrams as the best, what's the best strategy to treat um, patients who need this medication for CML? And the study's not over. But I think what we've been able to show is that um, our, our previous strategy was probably still the best, that 45-milligram starting dose and then 15-milligram dose when people are in response really seems to be the best strategy to cover the most patients, to, in, in, uh, to bring the, most, the highest number of patients into response or remission. We saw that the greatest number of patients achieve a crucial um, response where their PCR levels drop below 1%, which is called a cytogenetic remission, which is very safe. Um, uh, there were good responses in the other arms as well. They were, they were similar. Um, and importantly, in this study, we were looking at side effects to see if there were uh, differences in the side effects in the different um, groups. And there were some subtle differences, but um, at, at this point, I think we're able to say that um, the, the benefit strongest in the 45 um, milligram starting group. And it, it may be in the end that 30 milligrams also could be an encouraging dose um, to start with, and that 50 milligrams uh, maintenance still seems to be the right. So stay tuned as we finish um, uh, this study and and other studies as well. Um, So you know to wrap up, I think um, there's been really a lot of advance in targeted therapy, starting with this family of actually B3ablhemers, which I'm proud to say I've been able to to, uh, be part of that research. But but there's just a a, a nice evolution in all forms of leukemias, um, and we're seeing advances um, building on our prior. Um, workhorse therapies that span targeted therapies, bench to bedside, immunotherapy with different antibody conjugates, and um, and and our inhibitors. So I'll stop there and hand it over to our next speaker. Oh,
1: thank you so much, Dr. Moore. That was really outstanding and <laughs> just really. A lot of really wonderful updates on the juvenile leukemia that you've presented to everybody. Very inspiring and very helpful to hear. Um, I, I know people will take this information back to the Treating Health Care teams and really um, be sure they're accessing the very most, most up-to-date treatment. Thank you so much. Um, and um, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Ruben Messa. Dr. Messa is director, the Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson. Mays Stanley Foundation Distinguished University Presidential Chair, Professor of Medicine, UT Health, San Antonio Cancer Center, and NCI-designated Cancer Center. And Dr. Messner will be addressing updates on the treatment of mild proliferative neoplasms presented at ASCO. really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my very esteemed colleague, Dr. Messner.
2: Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Messner, and it's uh, really an honor to join such distinguished colleagues on key updates from these summers meetings. Uh, I look forward to presenting a, a bit of the updates in model proliferative neoplasms, but I won't limit myself solely to, to ASCO. As Dr. Morrow had alluded to there are times that uh, there's a variety of venues that things are presented at during the summer. So let me try to cover some of the discussions both at ASCO, the European Hematology Association meeting, as well as some of the other key updates. So uh, first, as we speak of myeloproliferative neoplasms, we're really focusing today on three main diseases: essential thrombocythemia, polycythemia vera, and myelofibrosis. In essential thrombocythemia, a disease too many platelets, risk of blood clots and bleeding, uh, potential of symptoms. There was an important paper which just came out in the journal Blood that is very relevant for a therapy, and it looked at the impact of aspirin. Most patients are on aspirin, and typically a baby aspirin, of 81 milligrams per day. What this important study showed is that using aspirin twice a day, 81 milligrams twice a day, potentially had a better overall control of the platelets and decreasing the risk of blood clotting events than in some individuals with uh, who are only taking one aspirin per day. So potentially uh an impact on how we are approaching ET, certainly would recommend to patients to discuss this with their physicians. I would not recommend to anyone to make a change unilaterally, but at least a consideration. Next, there was a very important study at the European Hematology Association meeting regarding low-risk polycythemia vera. Traditionally, these patients have been treated with phlebotomy and aspirin and are not receiving cytoreductive therapy, such as hydroxyurea or interferon. Colleagues in Europe did a very nice study comparing the long-acting ropegulated interferon, uh, plus phlebotomy and aspirin is needed, versus phlebotomy and aspirin alone. And the overall benefit to those patients receiving interferon was significantly greater in terms of decreasing the number of events and improving difficult symptoms. Indeed, this is an ongoing study that we look forward to further data coming forward in the near future, but again, has the potential to to impact what has always been a relatively conservative approach for managing patients with polycythemia vera. Next, I'll pivot to myelofibrosis. Myelofibrosis is the most severe of the three MPNs. Patients in the short term can have an enlarged spleen, can have low blood count, can have difficult symptoms and the disease, unfortunately, can be both life-threatening and can progress towards acute leukemia. Uh, there were important updates. First, we'll mention that the, the baseline medical therapy for myelofibrosis has been historically ruxolidinib, the JAK inhibitor. Uh, and again, data both at ASCO and EHA have to support real-world evidence of the very significant benefits of ruxolitinib. But now the toolkit is broader. Uh, there has been the recent approval of fedradinib in September of 2019. And we saw at this summer's meeting uh, updated data on the use of fedradinib first in the frontline setting. So in uh, analysis from the Jakarta study, which was fedradinib versus placebo in Jack inhibitor naive patients, we see that there's significant benefit and that for individuals who had a plate count between 50 to 100,000, they were able to receive full-dose therapy. This is somewhat of a differentiator versus ruxolitinib, in which we typically would have a dose modification in that range. So that is a, an area both consistent with our current NCCN guidelines that we would consider the use of Fidradin in the upfront setting. Second, there was uh, important data regarding the use of Fidradin in the second-line setting, Uh, My colleagues and I have looked at uh, updated analysis using strict criteria defining second-line criteria, duration of response, and criteria of response from the Jakarta II study. We see a solid 30 to 35% response rate in terms of spleen and symptoms for individuals with myelofibrosis who had previously failed rexolidinib. So again, this is a therapy that, as we speak, Individuals that have failed rectalindinib who are not potentially going to stem cell transplant, the radnib is a very important consideration. Now, there are uh, important uh, studies ongoing, as well as updated analysis from two other JEC inhibitors that are well along the path to uh, approval. First, there is mamalidinib, which had previously been shown to help to improve spleen symptoms and anemia. The new study that has just opened up that was highlighted in the summer studies called the Momentum Study, for symptomatic individuals who are transfusion-dependent, and they will be randomized between mombalidinib and uh, a comparator arm with danazole. That's an important trial for consideration for individuals uh, who fit those criteria. Next, acritinib, a JAK2 and FIT3 inhibitor, particularly beneficial for spleen and symptoms that can be used and dosed fully in individuals with severe thrombocytopenia or count below 50,000. The Pacifica study is currently open uh, uh, for such individuals and is an important consideration for those individuals. Now, at the summer meetings, we heard about several new drugs in development that have some very promising results. One, the LSD-1 inhibitor from Imago Pharmaceuticals. Uh, presented from the University of Michigan, but a multi-center study, including open in my center, uh, showing nice improvement in spleen and symptoms in individuals that had failed uh, ruxilidinib. We see the addition of Nevitiflax uh, to ruxilidinib in suboptimal responders having a very nice response in spleen and symptoms in those that had had an inadequate response. We see the BET inhibitor from Constellation Pharmaceuticals, uh, particularly helpful in individuals with the ASXL1 mutation, both helpful as frontline therapy in combination with brexucabtagene as well as being looked at in second-line therapy, and will soon be in a phase three study. And finally, the nbm 2 inhibitor from Cartos, showing exciting activity. So a lot of very exciting things are uh, ongoing, uh, really uh, impacting therapy of ET, PV, uh, and fibrosis. And we look forward to keeping you well-informed through these wonderful cancer care webinars as this data continues to evolve. And with that, I will hand it back to Dr. Messner.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Messa. It's really outstanding, uh, your presentation, and really um, identifying all of the updates um, on the research and Mr. Masco. And um, we thank you for that very much. And I think people will take your information back to the treating healthcare teams as well. Thank you. And our next speaker um, is Dr. Gregory Daniels. Dr. Daniels is Clinical Professor of Medicine, UC San Diego Morris Cancer Center. And Dr. Morris will be addressing updates on the treatment of melanoma presented at ASCO. And we will also be presenting a wrap-up of this Part 2 of our two-part ASCO series. And it's really my great pleasure now to turn program over to my very esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels.
2: Thank you, Caroline, and uh, thank you, everybody, that's been on the call. And I just, um, you know, do a wrap up at the end. But so far, um, I can just say, wow, um, this year's ASCO was um, a little attenuated because of the way we had to adapt to the epidemic that we're all um, experiencing right now. And um, to hear my colleagues outline so clearly some of the uh, seminal findings at the meetings. Um, for me, has been really helpful, too. Um, so um, I will start with melanoma, and I'm going to limit my talk to just um, cutaneous melanoma. So as we, some of us uh, know, um, there are different types of melanoma, ocular melanomas, um, mucosal melanomas, and then the majority of uh, melanomas that we deal with uh, originate from the skin or cutaneous melanoma. And this year, um, we have had some approved uh, therapies enter our armamentarium. Uh, Some of those were discussed in more detail at ASCO. But I would say ASCO for melanoma this year was really focused on um, the goals, which is try to decrease uh, toxicity, improve outcomes, try to do better patient selection um, for our uh, therapies and ultimately to minimize the amount of treatment that uh, patients need. So I'm going to start with a study by uh, Dr. Blank et al., um, which is looking at an approach of treating patients who present to a clinic with their melanomas in an advanced uh, but respectable stage. And so what I mean by that is they might have a a lymph node in addition to their primary tumor, or they're presenting with a lymph node under their arm or in their groin, each has melanoma, and historically we've gone ahead and done surgery to respect them, um, and then we'll give uh, treatment depending on uh, what we find at surgery. Uh, however, as uh, you've heard from some of the other speakers, um, another um, opportunity is to give some of these highly effective, uh, either targeted therapies or immune therapies prior to surgery to see if we can improve outcomes by minimizing the morbidity of surgery um, and ultimately securing uh, more patients. And so the study by Dr. Blank uh, builds upon um, earlier studies, like um, most of uh, the studies presented today. It looked at high-risk uh, stage 3B and above uh, melanoma patients who are given a combination of two immune stimulants, cipolumumab and nivolumab at a dose that was previously determined to be the best tolerable, and then after a set uh, number of doses, uh, up to two, uh, patients then go on to surgery, and based on what the surgeon finds and the psychologist finds, they're randomized to either additional therapy or no additional therapy, and the advantage here is that these patients uh, likely would have needed additional adjuvant treatment before. But in this case, we get a good idea uh, prior to even giving that treatment. You know, a lot of patients tell me, well, okay, I'm cured of my disease. How do you know this drug is working? Uh, Which is a fair question when we're giving adjuvant treatment to patients who have already undergone uh, treatment. And I'll have to say, honestly, the only way I know is if, you know, the cancer doesn't come back. And even there, um, I I have to be honest that uh, the cancer may not have come back anyways. And so this this whole paradigm of neogenic treatment gives us a lot of information and helps uh, steer patients' care better. And this um, study um, just shed additional light on this promising approach, not quite standard of care, but when we saw that the overall complete response rate in these relatively uh, low-treated patients was more than 50%, it gives us hope that this is a new paradigm coming into play and more, more studies are going to happen. The second study is uh, Dr. Postow's study that I'm going to highlight, um, which looks at patients with metastatic disease. And currently there's um, multiple therapies that the patient may be treated with when they they have disease uh, of melanoma that's spread all over their body. And these drugs, while effective, definitely have toxicities. And we need to learn... Um, again, how to better apply these and potentially limit these. And so what Dr. Passo did was treat patients with, again, the combination of ipilimumab and nivolumab at a dose of 3-to-1 uh, for their drug. And then after two doses of these uh, previously untreated patients, they did an early scan. And then, depending on the response that they saw, they then either did no no further um, Uh, application of the combination immune therapy, or they continue the combination immune therapy. And that's important because it's the combination immune therapy that's associated with so much more uh, toxicity risk for the patient. And so, uh, when they looked at this uh, approach, um, it's a small study, very provocative study, um, one that needs uh, us to confirm it, but interestingly when they did their two doses, it seemed to be giving approximately uh, as good of a response as we were seeing when we were getting four doses. and opens up the door to try to minimize exposure uh, to patients of the combination of the immune therapy. The third study that I'll mention is uh, what to do when a patient who has metastatic disease and has had immune therapy um, shows that the, the therapy continues uh, or stops working and that the cancer continues to grow. And in this case, um, there are many different options, um, but one is to continue with a different immune therapy. Um, We've gone on to, um, for example, when patients progress on a tumbrolizumab or nivolumab, which is PD-1 blocking therapy, we'll go on to either ctla 4 based or ipilimumab therapy. And in this study, they looked at patients who had progressed on anti-PD-1 therapy, and then Continued them on to pembrolizumab with a low dose uh, ipilimumab at one milligram per kilogram uh, for up to four doses. And here again, these patients had all previously progressed on immune therapy, in in this case a single PD-1 agent. But yet um, they were still seeing complete responses and a very high response rate uh, for this group of patients in the second line uh, treatment setting. So, uh, very encouraging uh, to continue to apply immune therapies to this group of patients. And the last um, topic I'll present is um, the combination of these precision medicine or BRAF-targeted um, drugs that has been mentioned in the other tumor types, of course, to cancer, also used in melanoma uh, to, to some degree, um, as well as um, the immune therapies. And about a month ago, a triplet of um, PD-1 blockade plus BRAF and MEK targeted therapy was approved for use in the first-line setting of melanoma. And this has been uh, something that the field has been looking at for several years, trying to get the quick um, response rates that we see with targeted therapies and combine it with the durability that we see with the immune therapies. And so the study was looking at the tezolizumab uh, with vamorafenib uh, plus covimetheib in patients uh, with uh, metastatic uh, melanoma compared to those that was just received the VRAF-targeted agents by themselves. And at the meeting, um, one of the posters that was discussed uh, was looking at outcome for patients uh, with respect to mutilab. Um, metastasis to certain areas and their survival, uh, which was very interesting. However, it was shortly followed by the FDA approval of this uh, combination in the frontline uh, setting for uh, patients, adding to what we already have, which is single agent um, PD-1 therapy or targeted therapy or combination immune therapy. Now we have a combination of immune therapy with uh, targeted therapy. So really um, an amazing time in melanoma that we have all these uh, things to choose from. However, I will say that um, even now, there's still a lot to work on because despite all those tools, we still have 30 to 40% of the patients will not get um, what we consider the success, which is limited treatment and the disappearance of metastatic disease. And so the rest of the meeting was really diving into the biomarkers and understanding mechanisms of resistance with uh, multiple small studies presented attacking some of these with other immune stimulants, cellular therapies, engineered cells, and some of the stuff that you've heard in um, other tumor types today. So I'm going to pause there or stop there for the melanoma wrap-up and just go back to the theme of what uh, we've been listening to um, over the last hour and a half. And I'd say really um, the ones that stand out for me is the stepwise. Um, relentless uh, pursuit of defining better therapies to improve the efficacy for patients. Um, you know, in lung cancer, um, as, as mentioned by Dr. Chris, we saw um, a decrease in, in death rates from uh, lung cancer. That's now uh, the result of uh, getting better um, genomics information off the tumor types, targeting these other driver mutations. Um, earlier introduction of uh, therapies to patient care, um, all to uh, improve efficacy. At the same time, uh, we heard uh, multiple uh, speakers talk about uh, decreasing toxicity, finding that minimum biologic um, uh, amount of drug needed, taking um, some rational combinations two drugs that seem to have not much um, activity on their own Um, and then combining them together and finding better activity or synergy in the activity, and yet the toxicity um, doesn't seem to go up um, either. And so um, decreasing toxicity, improving efficacy. And lastly, uh, across all these, is um, patient selection. And the word genomics um, kept getting used throughout all the presentation, and this is... um, you know, in the last several decades of uh, first understanding DNA, understanding the blueprints, understanding that um, cancer is a disease of uh, mutation, plus the interaction that these mutations have with the body in the microenvironment, and putting all that information together and using that uh, to better select your patients and to better uh, guide therapy, so that now I think what you'll see is um, the whole field moving to try to define more meaningful endpoints for patients. It's not just about response rates anymore. It's about quality of life, improving overall survival, uh, minimizing uh, therapy uh, exposures in a very collaborative way, you know, which brings uh, kind of my impression from all these talks is um, really the, the feeling that we've entered this period of enlightenment for oncology. Uh, We're finally getting the tools to understand better um, all the intricate uh, uh, processes that cancer uses to overcome our body and now applying these tools back in really a relentless, scientific-driven way uh, through collaboration, through communications like this, um, which I really applaud um, Cancer Care for doing um, and getting more information out to everybody so we can continue these discussions. So I'll wrap up
1: there, and thank you very much for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. That was really superb, both your presentation on melanoma, and also your wrap-up of today's program, and and your phrase, the enlightenment for oncology um, that that the treatments have become more specific, less toxic, and really. Um, very excellent information people to have as they go back to the treating healthcare health team. What a wonderful, um, it's so wonderful that you stay on the call to the very end and actually do this wrap-up the year. Uh, thank you enough for this. Uh, so thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. And um, I would just like to conclude with a few comments about um, about the services that all of you can access in Cancer Care. I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. And I would like to just review a few a few of our services that are accessible to you, especially now with the base of the environment. There are so many things, maybe practical things, that you may need help with um, in your day-to-day uh, living with, with cancer. Uh, cancer Care is a national organization, um, and we provide services to all parts of the United States, all, all areas of the United States. And um, many people call us on our Cancer Care Hotline. or um, or they they visit our website. And um, either way, one of our oncology social workers will be back in touch with you, and we'll talk to you about your concerns. So we offer support to people who contact us. We offer financial and practical assistance. We also have these Connect education workshops, many of them. There are many more coming up in the fall, and you'll be hearing more about them. And we have a very active uh, publications and fact sheets, and a very active website. And then if you have registered on our website or have gone to the website for information, um, so that's a wonderful resource as well. We do believe in connecting you also with resources that could be of help to you. We have a whole case management system now in place in which we, our oncology social work staff will work with you. And if there's a, a something that you require that we do not have, we will be sure to be sure that you get the referrals to that place, but we'll stay on with you until you're truly connected to that service that you require. Cancer also has a copay foundation as well. To provide even more extensive financial assistance. So with that all being said, we hope that you will take advantage of these services. They are here for you. Um, They are here for you and your family members as well, caregivers. And also, we, uh, we don't want anyone to leave this program today thinking that you are alone. Although, of course, it is quite natural to feel alone in coping with cancer and in our current environment of COVID and, um, and the social isolation that many people are encouraged to, you know, to not really kind uh, of really hang out with all of your friends face-to-face. You really have to actually do that on the telephone or um, on social, some other way of connecting to people. And so we want you to know, know that you're now connected. Not only to Cancer Care, but all the different organizations that we work with as well. So, please, in those moments when you feel that you are alone, know that you can contact our staff at Cancer Care, and we will assist you to become connected to others that can really help you cope with that feeling. So, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all, and i uh, all take care.